Hi, this is Javier Escovedo of The Zeros, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me on My Rock Moment. Today, we're going to sit down with award-winning writer, producer, and director David Leaf. Now, David's the creative visionary behind such critically acclaimed films as The U.S. vs. John Lennon, The Bee Gees, This Is Where I Came In, and Beautiful Dreamer, Brian Wilson and the Story of Smile. But he's also a dear friend of Brian Wilson's, and that was really a friendship that was crafted through his work on the 1978 book, The Beach Boys and the California Myth. Now, the book was initially written with the intent of telling the real story of Brian Wilson at the time, you know, essentially setting him free, because 1978 was a time of much public misunderstanding. The third edition of the book, though, titled God Only Knows, The Story of Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and The California Myth, is now available, and it really celebrates the close friendship they've cultivated since that first edition. It celebrates the music that Brian has created as a solo artist. And above all, it really provides that happy ending that the first edition just could not. So reading the book, I got to know Brian Wilson on a whole new level, and I learned quite a bit about the Beach Boys journey as well. So I'm excited about this discussion. There is a lot to cover. So let's get started. Well, since she put me down, I've been up to it in my head. I come in late at night. For everybody listening, David Leaf is the author of God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth. And it's in its third edition, and it came out in June. It came out in June in the UK, and the US edition comes out uh, September 22nd, which is today. Exactly. Perfect timing. Okay, I guess I just got a sneak peek. That's what I got when I got the, the book. Now it's available to listeners, and I highly recommend it, and I want to deep dive into that book. However, you have quite a career as an author, producer, and director. You've crossed paths with the who's who of the music world, uh, Barry Gibb, Frank Sinatra, Paul McCartney, Elton John. So yeah, we're probably going to touch on that a little bit later. <laughs> Happy to talk about all those incredible moments because they, they, really, they really were like a, a series of dreams come true. I'm sure. I'm sure those names, I mean, and, and you worked with them very closely. So I do want to touch on, on all of that, but First and foremost, let's get back to the Beach Boys. Now, I want to first specify, and you probably know this about me, growing up, I had a relationship with the Beach Boys that probably most teens of my day had. You know, I knew all the hits, California Girls, mm -hmm. Serpent USA, Good Vibrations, but I was also a California girl, and I was a South Bay girl no less. So I grew up on the beach and I grew up just a couple miles away from Hawthorne, which I knew was the home of the Beach Boys. So that probably in retrospect, in retrospect, strengthened my affinity for the band and that surf sound in general. Well, you were actually the girl that I moved out here to get, but, <laughs> but, but you hadn't been born yet. Be, be, because, because uh, you know, I, I heard Surf City on the radio when I was a kid, you know, a, a preteen uh, boy. And it was like, I couldn't even get a girl to talk to me. So <laughs> I, I'm going out there. Two girls for every boy. It sounded pretty, pretty good in my dumb, naive way. You and every other boy, I tell you. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, since then, obviously, my love and knowledge of the band has only grown. Um, but this book, this book showcases the band as a very complex one. You know, they were a family band. They had that overbearing father. Um, but the book also fosters a deeper respect for the challenges that Brian Wilson faced since really coming into the limelight in the 1960s. And I knew that was the objective of the book, as you said, to tell a different story, to set Brian free at the time when the book first came out in the 70s. You know, back when I started work on the first edition of the book, obviously you couldn't just Google Brian Wilson's name and see all these incredible quotes from his peers, from his 
you know, Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan, the old, old people of his generation who thought he was incredible. So for whatever reason, uh, I took it upon myself as my mission that I was going to move to California and uh, write this book and kind of grab the world by the shirt collar and say, you've got to pay attention to this guy, Brian Wilson. Do you realize how important he is? Well, honestly, and this is no exaggeration, I hadn't been in, in Santa Monica for more than 36 hours when I was crossing the street at Fifth and Broadway and walking towards me was Dennis Wilson. And, I mean, and, come on. And I was always confident, maybe overconfident, but I walked up to him and I said, uh, hi, Dennis, uh, my name is David Leith and I just moved to California to write a book about your brother, Brian. And he just laughed and laughed because it, it just seemed preposterous. <laughs> he just said, good luck. And then he went, went inside the building um, where we were standing. Um, and it was just one of those bizarre moments of, of serendipity. And yet three years, almost to the exact date of that meeting on the street, in Santa Monica, uh, the first edition of the Beach Boys and the California Myth was in stores from coast to coast. So perhaps it was indeed my destiny. That is crazy. And about eight months later, after I had met Dennis, um, I was at the West LA Y with a friend of mine from college, Barry, and we were on a basketball court just shooting baskets, and these two guys walk onto the court. One of them was Stan Love, who had just retired from the NBA, the brother of the lead singer of the Beach Boys, Mike Love. And with him was Brian Wilson. Now, this was just insane because everything one had read about Brian in the preceding half dozen years was he's, he never leaves the house. He's in his bedroom or if he's out, he's out at night in his bathroom. I mean, it's just, it just made no sense that there he was on the basketball court. And I don't remember exactly what I was thinking as we were playing, but I can tell you this, this guy was all offense, no D. That's in basketball terminology. Every time he got the ball, he shot. And when it came his turn to play defense, there was no defense. <laughs> so it, it was, again, a remarkably coincidental meeting, or maybe not coincidental, and I couldn't wait to tell my friends uh, who I had just played basketball with. We come on this loop, John B. My grandfather and me. Around Nassau town, we did roam. Drinking all night. Got into a It's interesting, though, because you deep dive into Murray Wilson. He was really a troubled man. And you said he was a wannabe, you know, star, musician, all these things. He wanted to be in the music business. He had wanted to succeed. And there was so much anger and ire in him, it seems like, that he didn't. So he took it out. He, he saw Brian and the rest of the boys as his punching bag. But at the same time, his ticket to somewhere he was never able to go. Well, he didn't, he didn't know that they were going to be his ticket. It wasn't until they had this ac literally an accidental hit. Dennis, Dennis was a, a surfer, the only real surfer in the Beach Boys. And he came home one day and he knew his brother could write music. And he, and he said to you know, his brother, Brian, and cousin Mike, why don't you guys write a song about surfing? And Brian, you could sing it at like a school assembly. I mean, that, that, was, that was the extent of their ambition. You think of the Beatles, John and Paul meet in 1957. They spend the next five years woodshedding, trying to make it, trying to get a record deal. Literally, in a matter of months, the, the Beach Boys are conceived, right. are named, make a record, and it's a hit here in Los Angeles. And they're and, kids. And, and they are kids. Carl and, and Dennis and David Marks are all in high school at the time. Mike Love has graduated from high school. Brian has as well. And he's going to El Camino Junior College in the South Bay. I mean, and with, with no ambitions towards being in the music business. 
So, so it was, it was, it was as if they had won the lottery. The the, the notion that sixty years ago, um, the Beach Boys signed a, a deal with Capitol Records. The same year that the Beatles signed uh, a recording contract with EMI in London, that the the Capitol's parent company. Mm-hmm. So, so there were a lot of uh, coincidences in their career. Uh, Brian and Paul McCartney were both born in June of 1942. Uh, Paul was born two days before Brian. Literally, June, 18th, June 20th. They were the bass players in their bands. They were beautiful voices, beautiful songwriters. And because of that two-day difference, one, one time we were all together and, and Brian called Paul Old Man Pablo. <laughs> I, there, I don't think there's anyone else on the planet who could have gotten away with it. But Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney, loves Brian Wilson. He, he legitimately loves him. And there isn't anything he wouldn't do for Brian Wilson. So he, he just smiled. But it was like, we were like, oh, my God. Old man Pablo? <laughs> that, that was not exactly what Paul was expecting. They have a real re- unique friendship. And it, it it's beautiful because it seemed very competitive, but also very healthy. Um, and it's sustained itself through so many decades. And obviously, you know, everybody knows about the, the records inspiring each other and whatnot. But, you know, you you got into it a little bit in terms of Brian hearing Rubber Soul. Um, and he talks about it, you know, um, on, in numerous mediums, but hearing Rubber Soul and it blowing his mind, knowing, okay, this is where we have to go. This is where I need to take the Beach Boys music. We need to start experimenting. Well, what's what's fascinating about it is he's already on the road to Pet Sounds on the yeah. albums called The Beach Boys Today and, and Summer Days and Summer Nights. He's already experimenting. He's already writing songs that are much more mood expressive than feeling expressive than about the sun, the sand, the surf, the girls, the cars. He's He, he is already moving in that direction. When he hears Rubber Soul, and for the, the Beatle nuts out there, he heard the American version of Rubber Soul, which was of a mood. If he had heard the, the actual UK version of it, the way the Beatles had programmed it, that began with Drive My Car, he might have had a different reaction. Hmm. But anyway, he, he hears Rubber Soul, and he realizes, okay, the bar has been raised. I am now going to write, and I have to now go make an album that beats that. That's 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 the competition, and what he does in in, in late '65 and early '66 is he essentially composes, arranges, and produces an album called Pet Sounds that is his, his emotional autobiography, and it was unlike anything anyone had ever done to this day. Really, uh, it stunned the music world. In 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 the introduction that Jimmy Webb uh, wrote for, for this edition of the book, he talks about how Brian's writing uh, freed composers and songwriters to talk about their feelings the way Dylan had freed writers to, to talk about what they were thinking. So it was, a, it was an epic th- uh, creation that, that Brian had done. During the course of, of, of the making of Pet Sounds, he, he also wrote one song that, that he didn't quite finish. He wasn't quite happy with the way it was, but he had recorded a, an early version of a song called Good Vibrations. So that gives you an idea of this creative role that he was on. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about, you, you talk about competition between the Beatles and, and the Beach Boys. I worked, I had the great fortune of working with Sir George Martin on a number of occasions. Oh, and, and he said to me, uh, I, I literally I get goosebumps just thinking. You about gave it. me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he said he said that Pe- Sergeant Pepper was our attempt to equal Pet Sound. Not not Sergeant Pepper was the album we beat Pet Sounds with. It was our attempt to equal it. That's how highly regarded um, Pet Sounds was. And, and when you talk about rock moments in in nineteen ninety. When, when Pet Sounds was coming out on CD, um, I interviewed Paul McCartney uh, on, uh, 
to talk about just pet sounds for the for the liner notes for that for that CD. He was on tour in Japan at that time, and we were waiting for the call. It was Saturday night. He's going to call. He's going to call, and we kind of given up. And then around nine o'clock, the phone rings. It's like, can you hold for Paul McCartney? Yes, I can hold for Paul McCartney. <laughs> How long you need? <laughs> yeah. And and for the next half hour, we spoke just about pet sounds. I think it was a unique interview for him as well, because he'd been asked every question imaginable about the Beatles. But we weren't talking about the Beatles. We were talking specifically about another artist and another record. And, and it was during that interview where he talked about how God Only Knows was, to him, probably the greatest song ever written. And um, when I retitled the book, uh, the original book didn't have, wasn't called God Only Knows. This edition is called God Only Knows, as you said. And I asked him to write something for the book, and he emailed back a piece about God Only Knows. So that's kind of the overture that begins this edition of the book. It's Paul McCartney talking about Brian, the genius of Brian Wilson and God Only Knows. It's like, okay, that's a pretty good way to start a book. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. And and what did, and maybe maybe they played notes part, but... I have to ask, what part did potentially LSD and Phil Spector play in the creation of Pet Sounds? Well, Brian talks about, I, I directed a film called Beautiful Dreamer uh, in, in 2004. Yes. Uh, 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 and Brian talks about his first LSD trip in that, in that um, documentary. And when he came down from that first LSD trip, he went to the piano and he wrote, California girls. So it, it affected him uh, creatively <laughs> in a way that seemed to open musical horizons for him. Such a great song. It's unexpectedly great because it begins with the symphonic open. You have, you have no idea where it's going. So it was, it was also a departure. In terms of Phil Spector, Brian had been inspired by Phil Spector's recording techniques. He'd gone to some sessions that Phil Spector was producing, and he saw how Phil uh, made records, which was to gather the best studio musicians in Los Angeles. And sometimes you had two bass players and two saxophone players and stand-up bass player and keyboard player and piano player. You might have 10, 12, 15 musicians on a session. So for, for Brian had started doing that already in 1965 because the, the Beach Boys either were on tour or they didn't have the, the musical talent to play the, the what he needed them to play. For Pet Sounds, the, the so-called wrecking crew was, mm -hmm. was on every session um, and he, he conducted them like uh, an instrumental symphony. And, and so they were enormously important. Um, so he had learned the Phil, Sp Phil Spector production technique, but there's nothing about Pet Sounds that sounds like the records that Phil Spector made, even though Brian Wilson probably has listened to, to Be My Baby 10,000 times in his lifetime. I mean, it's just, he, he is obsessed with that record. I know that the group as well had a real tough time with Pet Sounds. And most people that are listening to this know that, you know, he this was really a, a one-man show in a sense. I know that, you know, Brian had a writing partner and there were a lot of session musicians helping him here, but this was his baby. This was his creation. They were out on the road. He had decided to stay home and produce music and they were doing their thing. They come back and they think, what has he done? He's changed our sound. <laughs> well, it, it's it. It wasn't 
that the sound had changed that was upsetting. It was that the subject matter had changed that mm-hmm. was that was of concern because the Beach Boys, starting with Surfing, Surfing Safari, 409, I Get Around, uh, you know, so many songs, Fun, Fun, Fun. They had been, the, the biggest hits had been upbeat and happy. Now, at the same time he was doing that, he was also recording songs like Surfer Girl, In My Room, The Warmth of the Sun. Don't Worry Baby is a magnificent ballad, incredible lead vocal by Brian. And unless you listen to the lyric carefully, you don't know it's about a car race. Very true. <laughs> the, the music isn't the issue. The subject matter is the issue. What are we talking about? A song called God Only Knows. What, what do you mean, God? What does that mean? Hang on to your ego? What, 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 is, what, what is that? What you, I just wasn't made for these times. You still believe in me? Don't talk. Put your head on my shoulder. I mean, these were not titles that were typical Beach Boys fair formula hits, if you will. And, yeah. and so there was concern expressed um, from what I've been told, from what I've read, from what I've heard, although he, he certainly denies it in his autobiography. Uh, Mike Love was, was the one who was concerned at the direction that Brian was taking the group. Uh, to be fair, as the lead singer of the group on the road, he's the one who's got to make the show work for the audience. Right. So are these new songs going to work for the audience? That's that's a primary concern. But unlike what was going on in the Beatles world, where they were spurring each other on to higher and higher point, uh, points of creativity, Brian was not getting the 100% buy-in, full support, rule with you, no matter where you want to take us. He wasn't getting it from within the band. He, he certainly wasn't getting it from his father, who was the group's publisher. And he definitely wasn't getting it from Capitol Records. Uh, Capitol Records really sabotaged that sounds. With the release of a subsequent album right after it, right? Well, they did a, a couple of things happen. One, one the, the album cover, which is the picture of the Beach, Beach Boys at the San Diego Zoo, had some record retailers thinking that the, the Beach Boys had made a children's record. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a problem. The biggest problem was when retailers sold out of Pet Sounds and they reordered copies of it, Capitol Records shipped them something called Best of the Beach Boys, a greatest hits album from their earlier hits. So the greatest hits album is usually released when your career is over. It's the record company figures you're not going to sell more albums, so let's cash in while we can. And it was really an ugly thing for them to do. They followed it with Best of the Beach Boys, Volume 2, Volume 3. There have probably been 75 to 100 Beach Boys greatest hits albums of one kind or another through the years. And so, you know, you were talking about how when you were first hearing the Beach Boys, what you were hearing was the greatest hits. A large part of that is because that's all the record company was, was making available. Mm-hmm. That's what the people, that's what, remember this thing called radio, that's what they were playing on, on the radio. Right. And, and so the Beach Boys got stereotyped and, and typecast as, oh, that, they're that group that made those fun in the sun hits. Right. And I understand that. And, you know, it, it makes people feel a certain way and they want to keep that feeling going. It's a good one. But, you know, to that point, when Pet Sounds came out, it wasn't like it was a automatic hit to the people that were even listening to it. You know, I felt it, it, from what I've read, it took a lot of people a few tries to really it, it, get it, on board. It took, it, with what it took, was doing I didn't get it the first listen. There were people, there were people hipper, smarter, uh, cooler than me who got it on first listen. In the United Kingdom, in England, in London, it was a giant, giant smash right away. In large part because Brian had had the the very cleverly had hired a man named Derek Taylor to be the Beach Boys publicist. Derek Taylor had been the Beatles publicist, and he was completely plugged in to the UK music uh, journalism scene. And so he basically he set it up brilliantly. He came out with a publicity campaign called Brian Wilson is a genius, dot, 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 I think, which eventually became just Brian Wilson is a genius. And, and, and 
he was able to get quotes from everybody about how great Pet Sounds was. John and Paul were over the moon uh, about Pet Sounds for your audience. Uh, John and Paul is shorthand for us baby boomers to John or John Lennon and Paul McCartney. We, we they're, they, you know, they're, they're, we, we always just called them by their first name. If the listeners don't know this, they shouldn't be listening. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. And I, you know, I teach a course in the Beatles at UCLA, and 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 on the yes. first day of class last year, one of the during the Q and A portion of of the first class, a student raised his hand and said, uh, "Professor Leaf." And I always have to like look over my shoulder to see who he's talking to. And they say that because I was a terrible student. But he goes, Professor Lee, are you going to be talking about the rivalry between the Beatles and Brian Wilson during the 1960s? And it's a 19 or 20 year old student. So it's become part of music history now that this was a rivalry. And I said to him, well, you know, I wasn't really planning on spending a lot of time talking about it, but if that's something you want to talk about. I'm happy. I'm happy to, to do that because. It was legitimate. It was important because Brian did Pet Sounds. In the interview I did with Paul McCartney, he said, here, there, and everywhere on, on Revolver was inspired uh, by, by the Beach Voice sound. That was something they, a very specific song you could point to as influence. Uh, then Good Vibrations came out in the fall of 1966, and it was Two months later that the Beatles went into the studio to start work on Sgt. Pepper. And it's like, okay, there's a new, a new level of genius we're competing with. And what Brian had done on Good Vibrations that nobody could figure out was invent something that might be called modular recording, where he recorded pieces of songs and then stitched them together into Good Vibrations. And he, he embarked on an album called Smile he, in the wake of Good Vibrations which was the Beach Boys' first million-selling number one hit. He was going to do an entire album in that style. And meanwhile, the Beatles were getting reports from Derek Taylor. You can't believe what's going on here. So there was like this kind of, mm-hmm. kind of back channel. You guys better raise your game. This, this, yeah. and, and, and Smile never came out in 1967 as it was supposed to. And so in, in 1971, when I first read about Brian Wilson and read about Smile, um, it, 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 it had an impact on me. And it's hard to explain exactly what, it, what happened. because Anyway, you've got to read the book to know a lot of this. But I can summarize it very quickly. What I came to think when I was 19 years old, and as a 19-year-old, you think you're going to change the world. Uh, I was going to school in Washington, D.C., was in the middle of the anti-war movement. They, they, we were getting tear gassed. We were getting chased by uh, club-wielding riot police. It was a very, very intense time. Everything was passion. We were really, whatever we believed in, we were passionately involved in. When I read Brian's story and talked to my roommate about it, I came to this really odd decision. I said, I'm going to move to California, write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend, and help him finish Smile, this legendary album that was supposed to come out in 1967. That was my mission that I had chosen. <laughs> Isn't it great being young? <laughs> well, yes, it is great being young. When, when, you hear, when you hear something like that, it's, it's, it's so absurd on the face of it. It's like saying, I'm going to run for president. I mean, it's, it's, it's that impossible. Um, well, first of all, I had to move to California, which I did. I met Dennis. I met Brian. I started uh, uh, meeting the other guys in the group. And through a long series of coincidences, I got the contract um, to, to write the book. Moved to California, write a book about Brian Wilson. Through writing the book, I became his friend because his friends... Right. We're helping me write the book, giving me insight into Brian. What his girlfriend at the time invited me over to dinner at her apartment when Brian was there, so I could get to know him—not to interview him, but to actually just hang out with him. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview.
hard was it to get a hold of all these people that were part of Brian's inner circle? And how receptive were they to you? Brian's inner circle was, was I think, suspicious is a good word. You had to be vetted before you could even be brought into the outer edge of the circle. Um, and I passed the test. Um, the, the book was such that, that Brian's friends could read it and say to Brian, this guy's okay. I, I doubt he ever read it. Brian, by the time I wrote that book, had, you know, was was not really a much of a reader anymore. He had been, uh, he had devoured books, but but he wasn't he wasn't reading much. And why would he need to read about his life? He had lived it. Um, but his friends, right. when they read the book, it was like, oh, okay, and they kind of opened the door and and let me in. And, and what I saw was not a happy, not a happy life whatsoever. It was. It was much more serious and sad than, than what I had seen from the outside. And so I became part mm. of the inner circle. I became one of his friends and, and kind of rode the roller coaster with him through years when he almost died and years when, in his words, he was in prison with a so-called doctor who had taken control of his life. Um, and Landy. that's right. And, I was an usher at his wedding and, uh, and got married to, to Melinda, who they've been together now 30 years. Uh, and, and so so I was there for the lows. I was there for the highs and everything in between. And ironically, maybe not so ironically, I, I actually was involved in helping him finish Smile. And And so this crazy, crazy idea I had in 1971 um, in 2004, it came true. And not only did it come true, not only was I there to see it, but Brian had said to me in 2003, I can't do this unless you're there with me. Can you imagine hearing those words? I, I can't imagine hearing those words. Uh, it, it's impossible to imagine hearing those words, except I had heard them on other occasions. For The, the first time Brian had gone on tour in 1999, um, he had called and he had asked uh, me and my, my late wife, he says, you guys got to come out here. I can't do this unless you're here. He needed what he calls emotional security to do his best. Mm. So in, in, he had it at one time when the rug was pulled out from under him with what happened with the record company and within the group and with mental issues and the abuse of his father and, and, and LSD and who knows what combination of everything so he needed that emotional security to go forward and and what we got to witness and participate with in in the subsequent in, in, since landing was gone is this amazing renaissance where brian was able to bring his music back to the world take it on tour he, he performed pet sounds he performed pet sounds live in its entirety he performed brian wilson presents smile it had never been finished. Brian Wilson Presents Smile was something he created to perform live. He, the, the idea of finishing this unfinished record was a mountain he couldn't climb. But what about the idea of putting it together and playing it live? And he did it. I mean, it was the, the daredevil act of all time in rock history. And he went out and did it to one of the, the greatest standing ovations I've ever seen at Royal Festival Hall in London. And you know, it was it was remarkable, and 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 during the standing ovation, he he went to the microphone. And he says, "Hold it, hold it!" Trying to get people, it's like, okay, that's enough. And the audience just applauded louder and louder and louder. And he stepped back, and he saw a deep sigh. And it's like you could see in this sigh, he was letting out all the anxiety of how is this music going to be received. Because he had been led to believe the music was too weird for the world. And instead, what he was experiencing was just the opposite. And as he stood there with his bandmates and he called his collaborator Van Dyke, he called his collaborator Van Dyke Brooks to the stage and they took an unbelievably cute bow because Brian's, you know, like 6'2 or 6'3 and Van Dyke is five feet and change. And it was like Yogi Bear and Boo <laughs> taking a bow. And he stood there. And, and I swear, I'm not one given to hallucination. Um, uh, 
it was as if the demons were flying out of his head because he had finished Smile. And so this dream that we had had, that wow. a, few, a few of us had had back in 1971, had come true. And one of the things that we had believed was if he finished Smile, then he would go on to create great music again. And he followed it with another rock opera called That Lucky Old Son. So everything we had mm-hmm. dreamed about, wished for, hoped for, prayed for, actually happened. And it not only lived up to our expectation, but exceeded it. And in life, almost nothing exceeds expectation. Hi, I love the colorful clothes she wears. And she's already working on my brain. So it sounds like it was quite a moment for him, but equally a moment for you. One that you'll never forget, not only to see Brian finish Smile, but to have such a big part in it. I mean, you talk about 1971. This is just stuff of dreams. It, it was all stuff of dreams. And you know, when I was making this documentary, and, and I made quite a few documentaries, but you, you talk about stories have a three-act arc. So when we started making the documentary, we knew what the first two acts were because the two first two acts were the past. The third act was, was he going to actually finish Smile? Was he going to get on stage and do it? And I remember when we were shooting on this world, world premiere night in February of, of 2004, I said to one of my cameramen, I want you backstage because when Brian walks up these steps, I feel like it's gonna gonna look like dead man walking, like he's walking to this unknown fate, and I want to capture that. I don't even know if he's gonna go out on stage and do it. He might turn around and come back, but this this guy is extremely determined. He he he's asked he's been asked many times, you know, why do you keep going? And he goes, you know, my name is Wilson, so maybe I have a lot of willpower. Great artists are really strong people. Despite what hands the world deals them, it takes enormous strength and power to create great art. And Brian Wilson has that. I did want to ask you, though, you know, you're coming at it. It's 2022. Now you've got this beautiful friendship with Brian. You've been living in California now for decades. When people say the California myth, I understand it. But do you think, and I know you address this in the book, but do you think it's all a myth? You know, it's funny. It's, I, I don't think it's a myth at all. Um, it's 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 just a very complicated story. The 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 history of California, uh, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, it, it is is sometimes a beautiful story and sometimes it's it's quite a terrible story in terms of how um, different uh, indigenous peoples have been taken advantage of. How I knew nothing. Uh, about the internment of the of the Japanese Americans during World War II, uh, I, I I knew nothing about yeah. pretty much anything to do with what really happened in California. Ca- California is is its own country, but when I when I drive uh, down Hawthorne Boulevard today, I see the California myth and and the reality of it, and I realize that everybody who's in those homes is living the California dream, not the California myth. And that when people come to California and they stand at the ocean's edge, there's nothing mythological about it. It's just a magnificent sight. Now, 
the reality of it is when I first came here, I was body surfing off the Santa Monica Pier. And it turns out that the water there is one of the five uh, dirtiest spots in, in the state because of the, of the drain pipe that, 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 that sewage water comes out of every day. The minute you said that, I thought, oh. <laughs> and, and, and so, so, so the reality of it is, is it, it's, it's, a, it's a dream um, that has nightmarish qualities. But, but California is a remarkable, remarkable place, uh, and, and it should be its own country. Maybe it should be four different states. Who knows? But it's, but it, but it's uh, uh, the myth that I, that I originally came up with the title for in 1978 was a juvenile title, as I said, Surf City, uh, not too far from where you grew up, although Huntington Beach claims to be Surf City, too. Uh, they do. But, but, they do. But, but that that notion that the stereotypical, you know, blonde uh, bikini on the beach that was that was what we eleven year olds thought of when we saw California and all those beach movies played into that. Uh, when I came here, I realized it was more complicated, and now I've been here almost forty seven years, and it's you know I address uh, not not from the point of view I'm not Joan Didion. I can't write about California you know, with, with that kind of uh, uh, grace and, and depth. But I do address, um, you know, the reality of California. But, but it's mythological, too, mm-hmm. because to the rest of the world, it, it is. is a place uh, uh, that, that people dream of coming to. And I, I don't think they're disappointed uh, unless they have to buy Disneyland tickets at today's prices. <laughs> I also think, and as somebody that was born and raised here, and like I said, born and raised where I was, um, you know, my mom was a surfer. She grew up off Hawthorne Boulevard, (laughs) Um, a few miles away from Palos Verdes, but it's a state of mind. And you feel it when you get in your car and you're driving down Highway 1 and you roll down those windows or you put down the top and the music's playing and the sun is out and you can look at the Pacific Ocean. And I think it's that feeling that people are trying to attain. And I think the Beach Boys music, sometimes if you're just a little kid in Iowa and it's the middle of January, that's a close. Well, it could be Iowa, home. it could be England, or it could be Japan. I mean, I I, I was on tour Anywhere. with Brian the first time he toured Japan. And there was a man who was who was taking he and Melinda and I around in, in Kyoto on, on this beautiful tour of the ancient city. And he and I were standing talking alone for a moment. And when I asked him if he knew who this man was, and he didn't. And I told him, and he didn't speak a lot of English. And he said, his music makes my heart soar. Now, I don't think there's a better way to describe it. His music makes my heart soar. I mean, it's just such a beautiful, eloquent way of putting it. And he didn't know anything about California. It was the music connected with him. Uh, there's something, Brian could have been born anywhere because the music was in him. Yeah. It just so happened because he was, he, he was raised in Hawthorne uh, and his brother was a surfer that that became the subject matter. But, um, you know, the music would have been the same coming out of him wherever he was born. Um, and, and that's really what's, what albums like Pet Sounds proved, that he, he was, he was yeah. composing music uh, at, a, at, a, at a level uh, that w- when you see the quotes in the beginning of the book, you hear him compared to Beethoven, Bach, Schubert, Mozart. I mean, it, it, that's, that's the level of genius we're talking about. And that has nothing to do with the Beach Boys, in a sense. Brian Wilson's story is much more complicated. It is filled with all sorts of emotional ups and downs. But ultimately, the, my, the biggest difference, I think, between the original edition and, and this book is this one has a happy ending. The, the original book, it, I think, is heartbreaking because that's the only way I, it could end if I was going to be honest as a journalist in 1978 was what happened to this man? Why is he not making the kind of music that I know is, is within him? 
And what is so joyful about this experience of, of updating it um, since 1985 is, is, is talking about this remarkable body of music he's created by himself as a solo artist that while it's not as popular as the Beach Boys, in, 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 in some ways it's even more or certainly as important in terms of uh, a second act. So what Brian Wilson was able to do since the last book came out is just the triumph of the human spirit. And so the book is a celebration. Whew, he did it. He made it. He's 80, he's 80 years yeah. old. And he can now look back and, and say he fulfilled his, his artistic destiny. It's amazing that you're able to end the book that way because you're right. You know, at first... You kind of left him on a low note and Landy and no one knew where that was going. Um, but I'm so glad that you revisited this for a third time and you were able to tell the full and complete story as a dear friend. Given that this is my rock moment, I want to ask you about the first time you really did hear the Beach Boys and how you felt, what it meant to you. Did you have some inclination that maybe this music was going to be a lifetime no. passion? The, the, the so first time I heard the Beach Boys, they were it was it was on the radio. It was probably in my room or Surfing USA, and it was just—it was a great record being played on the radio. So I had no idea. The first rock concert I went to was a Beach Boys concert. The opening—the opening acts were the Strawberry Alarm Clock, the Soul Survivors, and the Buffalo Springfield was supposed to play. But two nights earlier, their their bass player Bruce Palmer, who was from Canada, had run into visa problems, so they they were dropped from the show. So, so what my first (laughs) rock moment with the Beach Boys is that concert in that it was the first time I heard hit music being played live at the moment it was a hit. And I understood kind of the positive mass hysteria of being in a room with like-minded people hearing music we all love at the same time. And, and, and I, Gotten, I, I finally understood why people went to concerts. And I say that finally because I remember when literally the girl next door went to see the Beatles at Shea Stadium. And I remember thinking, why would you go to a baseball stadium to see a rock concert? I said, that's, that sounds, in my opinion, that seems pretty stupid. I, I didn't understand that the goal was to be in the room with people who made the music you loved. And, and so through my life, I've yeah. had a lot of great rock moments like that. But that was my first great rock moment with the Beach Boys. I had no idea that there, I had any future. And that, that wouldn't be till four years later. Till four years later. Isn't it funny how things just happen, you know? Um, and, you know, like I said in the beginning, there are other notable moments that I know you have. And I, pr- I mentioned that you produced and directed a number um, of projects aside from the books you've written and the list of icons that you've encountered. I, well, they're too long to mention, but I did want to ask what some of your favorite memories were, you know, from the road, um, having done, you know, the U.S. versus John Lennon or the Bee Gees, Frank Sinatra's classic duets. You know, the, 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 the U.S. versus John Lennon is, is a particular favorite of mine because I describe it as my revenge on the Nixon administration be, be, because, because, <laughs> because really the idea of it was born then when I saw what was happening to people who were, who were peacefully protesting. And John Lennon was peacefully protesting against the war he and Yoko. And so the idea of that film was, was, was born decades ago. In terms of rock moments, um, one can imagine how I felt standing catty corner to the Dakota the first time I went to meet Yoko to talk about the film, knowing I'd have to walk across the spot where John Lennon had been murdered to go upstairs to meet her and convince her 
to work with me on this film. So that was that was an incredibly nerve-wracking rock moment. The reason I got to make the U.S. versus John Lennon, I found out later. Well, one of the reasons I did was I, I had directed this film, Beautiful Dreamer, Brian Wilson, The Story of Smile. And when I when I pitched the U.S. versus John Lennon to Lionsgate, um, they, they bought it. And a couple of years later, I ran into the head of Lionsgate. And uh, he said to me, he says, you know, it was, the, it was the second easiest yes in my entire career. He said, he said greenlighting the sequel to Saw, Saw 2 was the easiest. Oh, come on. <laughs> but but a greenlighting U.S. versus John Lennon, he said, the guy who directed Beautiful Dreamer making a film about John Lennon, yes. <laughs> in terms of purely joyful rock moments, uh, in 2001, with, with the, the legendary producer, the late Phil Ramone and, and Chip Racklin, we produced an all-star tribute to Brian Wilson at Radio City Music Hall. And among the artists on the program, uh, uh, on the show, were Elton John, Paul Simon, uh, Billy Joel, David Crosby, Carly Simon, Vince Gill. Uh, I, I, I better stop because I'm gonna, I know I'll forget some folks. But imagine talking to Elton John at, at, at the Music Cares event about what song he was going to do with the Brian Wilson tribute. And, and I, I proposed the song and his, his manager very politely said, I think Elton should have a bigger hit than that, don't you? And I said, how about Wouldn't It Be Nice? And, and Elton said, that'll be perfect. Now, I knew he wanted to sing God Only Knows, but I was still hoping Paul McCartney was going to come and do it. And so I had held that back. Elton ended up doing a duet on Wouldn't It Be Nice with Brian and did God Only Knows as a solo song that night. So that just, and anyway, after that conversation of what song Elton was going to do, Elton, Elton kind of tapped me and said, don't worry, I'll be easy peasy. Uh, Elton knows his reputation for how he can sometimes be a bit of a diva. So he, so he was letting me <laughs> as the producer, uh, one of the producers of the event, know that he wasn't, there wasn't going to be any diva behavior, that Brian means so much to him as an artist. And I have a lot of quotes from him in, in the book that, that, that he was, yeah. was going to do whatever it took. And, and one, of the, one of the funniest moments of the tribute was before they went out to do Wouldn't It Be Nice, I had said to Elton, I said, this is an unusual thing for Brian to, he, he's going to be doing a duet and he's going to be leaving the stage. So after the song is over, if you wouldn't mind escorting him off the stage, because Brian was, 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 was never a natural performer. Anyway, they finish, they finish Wouldn't It Be Nice and Elton turns and Brian has already left the stage. And and Elton and Elton, and Elton came <laughs> off and, and he just he said he just shrugged and says, "I he was gone," and and it, and it created a problem for us in editing because it's like, wait a second, we need to see them each take a bow, and so so that Elton was great on that show. So one of the things I've experienced in my career is kind of everything goes back to me moving to California and deciding to write this book about Brian Wilson. It's if you think of those giant displays of dominoes that they sometimes show, and like hit the first domino and they all go over. If I didn't move here and write that book, so much of what happened in my career never would have happened. Um, You mentioned the Bee Gees. Um, The reason I got to write the Bee Gees biography was when they were looking for somebody to write the book, uh, uh, an executive at RSO Records read the Beach Boys and the California Myth and Galleys and said, this is the guy to write the book. Um, so I found myself on a plane to Miami interviewing the Bee Gees. And there were, there were a couple of incredible great, greatest rock moments with the Bee Gees. One was on this very first trip. I was in the studio just observing as they were make, working on, on, on their record, which was the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. So there's a lot of pressure. And a lot. Uh, at one point, everyone left except 
the engineer producers, Carl and Albie, and Barry, who was going to be singing a lead vocal that night. He says, well, you can stay if you want. Yes, I want. And so it's <laughs> they've darkened the lights in the control room. And I'm sitting on the couch in front of the board and the glass is right in front of me. Behind the glass is Barry at the microphone. And he's singing the lead vocal for a song called Too Much Heaven. A song I'd never heard before. A song no one had ever heard before. And I'm listening to it. And I'm thinking, is this as great as I think it is? And the answer was, yes. But I'm, you know, greatest rock moments. That's right up there at the top of the list to see one of the greatest songwriters and singers of the rock era sing one of his most beloved songs. I was with, I was in the audience when the Bee Gees played a, a benefit concert at the United Nations and do, played that song and donated the proceeds from the song to the UN. Decades later, I was contacted by the Bee Gees and said, do you think you could get Brian Wilson to induct the Bee Gees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And wow. I spoke to Brian about it. And Brian, Brian is not someone who volunteers to go in front of an audience and give a speech, but he loves the Bee Gees a lot. And he said, yes. And so we flew to Cleveland and the night before um, the induction, we're in a hotel room and there's Brian and Barry together. And it's like, I don't know, it's like suddenly you're in a room with two US presidents and, and, and they're talking and they're talking about <laughs> stuff that's way over everybody's head. But the but the reason they're there is the song that Brian's going to perform at the induction is too much heaven. And he's, Brian is going over it with Barry. And there's just, they're so nervous around each other. It's very charming. Anyway, the next night, at the, at the event, Brian sings Too Much Heaven. And we're sitting in the audience. And when Brian hits the high note at the table next to us, there was a little group called Crosby, Stills, and Nash who were being inducted that night. And David Crosby, in a very loud voice, goes, oh, my God. Because as one of the greatest harmony singers of all time, he recognized yeah. that he was in the presence of genius. And a few years later, he was on the bill at the Radio City Music Hall show singing In My Room with Carly Simon and Jimmy Webb, introducing The Warmth of the Sun and, and performing Surf's Up. So it all kind of blends together. The, the one thing that has no connection to the Beach Boys or Brian Wilson or rock and roll was working on the Frank Sinatra special. Although, I mean, it's Sinatra. Come on. I grew up, my mother had seen Frank Sinatra when he was just starting out as a young big band singer. So I grew up in a, in a household where Sinatra was a big deal. He was Elvis before Elvis. He was, he was the Beatles before yeah. the Beatles. He was the guy. He was the voice. And through a, a long series of odd coincidences, I ended up getting a job as a production assistant on a Frank Sinatra special. And one day, the producer of the show, a man named Paul Keyes, said to me, come on, kid, we're, we're going over to rehearsal. Now, as a production assistant on, on a television special, you're what they call a golf, which means you go for lunch, you go for coffee, you, you know, you, you do errands. You're, you're an errand boy. And, and, you know, I haven't heard, I mean, I've heard gopher, but the way you just and, said you know, it is this, perfect. And, and he would, one day he would say to me, hey, hey, kid, you know those shoes at the bottom of my, of my closet in my office? Would you get them shined for me? I want to wear them tomorrow. Now, I'm three and a half years out of college. This is not exactly 
you know, my career isn't a dream at this point. I was the back, I, you know, I had been yeah. the backstage <laughs> security person checking people in at Tandem Productions. Anyway, so he says, come on, kid, we're going to rehearse. So we drive onto the Burbank Studios lot. We park in this special spot. We walk into a soundstage, a giant soundstage. And in the corner of the soundstage is an orchestra, the Nelson Riddle Orchestra. The Nelson Riddle Orchestra, for those of you who are not Sinatra people, uh, played on a lot of Sinatra's greatest records. Standing with his orchestra is Nelson Riddle at the podium. Standing next to Nelson Riddle is Mr. Sinatra. And otherwise, the room is completely empty. And the producer and I take pick up folding chairs and we put them down about 10 or 15 feet away from where the band is. And Paul Keyes, the producer, says, hey, Mr. S., how's it going? And he goes, good, Paul. You ready for us to run the show? And he says, yes. And Mr. Sinatra turns to Nelson Riddle. Nelson Riddle gives the downbeat to the band, and they start playing one of Sinatra's classics. I don't remember what it was. It could have been I've Got You Under My Skin, one of those you know, legendary Sinatra songs. And then Sinatra starts to sing. And in about 30 seconds, this thought goes through my head. When I was a kid, I played trumpet, but I sure don't play like those guys. When I was a teenager, I had a group, David Leaf and the Twigs. I was, I was the lead singer, but I sure don't sing like that guy. Next thought was, at this moment, I may be in the coolest place in the universe, getting a private concert from Frank Sinatra. And the next thought was, what can I do to earn my place in this room? Because this is where I want to be. I want to be where the magic is happening. And so that was, even though he wasn't a rock and roller, he certainly lived a rock and roll lifestyle, but that was, you know, maybe my first epiphany, great, greatest rock moment. David, this has been such a fun, informative um, discussion, and I'm so grateful to have you on. And I would encourage everybody, I don't care if you are, just a rock fan or a hardcore Beach Boys fan, you will enjoy this book and you will learn so much about Brian and the Beach Boys in general. You know, I know the focus is on Brian, but you do look at the band holistically. And um, I appreciated that. Now, I'm going to put a link in the show notes where people can go buy it. Go buy it. It's now available. Get out there and do it. <laughs> thank, thank you. I, I, I trust people will listen to you. The, the, you know, the thing about the book that, um, I, I hope people listening to, to this show will think about is it's a, it's a, st a story that's a human drama. It's not just about a rock group. It's about family. It's about harmony. It's about disharmony. It's about unity and what happens when things fall apart. It, it really plays out against the last half century of America in a way that's unexpected. And, and I think Brian's story, the, the, the reason to celebrate this book is to celebrate him and what he's accomplished as a human being and an artist. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and people who aren't Brian Wilson fans, uh, aren't music fans even, I think will find value in, in learning about what, it, what kind of challenges he overcame yeah, just human perseverance. It is. At its core. Well, thank you for telling the story, David. Thank I you. appreciate my, it. And thank my, you for really coming Really my pleasure. I, I, can, I can talk forever about this subject and, and write forever about it too.
All right, a big thank you to David Leaf, not only for coming on My Rock Moment, but for writing the book and telling the complete story of a dear friend, the enigma that is Brian Wilson. You can find the link to the book in the show notes. It's a compelling read. Definitely check it out. Now, as always, don't forget to subscribe. Follow me on Instagram at LA Woman Rocks for all those rare classic photos. Send me a DM if you want. <laughs> but that's it for now. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you at the next episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.